So for the first few weeks of Easter, we have been working through a book of the Bible. Does anybody remember what book we're in? Oh, man. Second Hezekiah, Brian says. Can anybody correct him? <laughs> Ephesians. Ephesians. We've, we've been working through Ephesians, uh, and we're slowing down a little bit. We've, uh, we've been keeping a kind of slow pace, and, and this week and next week, we're, we're going to really pay attention to the details around us. Amen? Uh, I hope that you have had a chance to start reading the book uh, with us. Uh, I've encouraged you uh, to either maybe take a chapter a day. There's six chapters in the letter. Uh, so you could read one chapter a day and uh, read it once a week as we move through uh, as we move through this letter. You could be a bona fide expert in it by the time uh, we make it through. Uh, or you could also uh, take it and in one sitting a week read all the way through it. It doesn't take terribly long, just a little bit of attention uh, and kind of get a sense for the whole picture of it. Because as we break it up into little pieces, sometimes it's easy to lose a sense of how, how that works with the whole. And I don't want to bore you by telling you what happened last week and next week every time. Amen? Uh, so this week, we're looking just at verses 7 and the beginning of verse 8 uh, as, we, as we study together. Last, last week, we read this whole passage uh, together, verses 3 through 10. But this week, we're going to dive in, and next week. Uh, and really look at two particular words that are in this as we kind of think about and expand how we can talk about our faith together. Hear this word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. We'll read it one more time. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about redemption. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about forgiveness. Is there anybody here today that like those words kind of become interchangeable for you in church ease? Like, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed, I've been saved. All these words kind of blend together as you think about, am I the only one that that happens for? There's some laughter maybe indicating I'm not the only one, but no feedback. All right, we're trying today. So this week, we're talking about redemption. What are we talking about this week? Redemption. In what book? We've got to wake y'all up a little bit today. Good. We're going to talk about redemption. And as you think about redemption, I want to tell you a story, not, not from Scripture, but, but from the, the classical world. It might help just, just embed the image of redemption for you. There, there are scriptural stories, too, uh, that we'll mention along the way. But this one is helpful for me and, and maybe for you. Uh, so there are two great um, uh, epic poems from ancient Greece. There's the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the Iliad is Homer's story about the Trojan War. Right, it's the story of Achilles fighting uh, in the Trojan War, and spoiler alert, uh, in book 24, uh, towards the end of, of the uh, epic, um, Achilles is, has been on a tear. Uh, he is very angry uh, because Hector, who is the, the hero and the greatest soldier of Troy, uh, has killed Achilles' best friend, Patroclus, okay? So Achilles, who's the greatest warrior for Greece, um, and, and 
and uh, Hector, who's the greatest war warrior for Troy. He's also the king's son and the heir to the throne. Um, and Achilles is very mad at Hector and finds him in battle and kills him. Um, so it wasn't just an happenstance that they met in battle, uh, but Achilles sought him out and took his life because Hector had killed his best friend, Patroclus. So Achilles kills Hector, but that wasn't enough for him as he sought vengeance. He refused to let the Trojans claim Hector's body so that they could give him a proper burial. Uh, and he did things that made Troy more and more mad uh, as this went on. And, of course, the Trojans were getting more and more mad. And King Priam, who is the king of the Trojans, is getting more mad. But rather than try to, try to go on a military expedition to reclaim his son, the, the Greek gods, as the story goes, all conspire together to help King Priam get his son back so they can give him a proper burial. And so... At night, the body was kept at Achilles' tent, way back behind the enemy lines in the Greek camp. And King Priam, with the help of Hermes, uh, takes a giant cart pulled by a mule, laden down with all kinds of treasure, with jewels and valuable money and all kinds of valuable clothes and things. And they, they take this mule and this cart, which you can imagine how loud it would have been, right through the middle of the enemy's camp in the middle of the night, and nobody notices them. And they go all the way to Achilles' tent, and there the gods have kind of prepared the way for Achilles to negotiate with this bereaved father about how he can have his son's body to give him a proper burial. So it all works out fine. Uh, Priam gives all of this treasure to Achilles to redeem his son to get his son's body so that they can take him back and give him the burial as a war hero that he deserves. He liberates Hector from the one who has no right to possess him and takes him back into his rightful possession, right? This is what redemption looks like. This is what it means to be redeemed, to be liberated from someone or something or some things that should have never been your master. Redemption is the word that gets used to describe when prisoners of war are returned home to their rightful place. It's the word to describe what happens when someone who's been enslaved becomes free again. It's the word to describe what happens when something has been held as collateral for a loan, when you've taken something to the pawn shop and left it there for a certain amount of money, when you go back and fulfill the terms of the loan and get your item back, you have redeemed it. You've taken it from the person who wasn't really the rightful owner, and you've reclaimed it as your own. It's the word for when criminals condemned to death have their sentences commuted. It's what happens when fetters or handcuffs are unlocked, when chains are removed, and when you're set free. Redemption is a word of liberation. It's a word of deliverance. It's a word of freedom. Uh, and the word gets used all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but one particularly clear use is in Job 5. It says, In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in war, from the power of the sword. Whatever it is that threatens you, whatever it is that oppresses you, God will redeem you. He will deliver you from those things. So today we're talking about what? Redemption. Redemption. In what book? Y'all will remember next week. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness. 
which is deeply related. These ideas are bound together, but they're not exactly the same. And the reason it's helpful for us to distinguish between them a little bit is it will help you talk about your faith. It will help you understand what Jesus has done for you. It will help you recognize God's work in your life, maybe a little more fully. And so while it might seem like technical work, I hope that you see that it helps us dive deeper into the truth of our faith. To be redeemed is to be set free, to be liberated from whatever that holds you captive, and it should not be so. And this is important because we as humans were made to have a master. We were made to have a Lord, and we will without fail. In, in as much as you can be assured, everyone here, unless you're a secret alien, is breathing oxygen, right? We need it to survive. In the same way, we as humans are wired to have a master, to have a Lord, to have something that our lives are subject to that directs our lives and that we direct our worship and attention towards. No matter how much we'd like to pretend that we are the directors of our own faith, the masters of our own destiny, we will always have a master. No matter how powerful we get, no matter how successful we are, there will be something that is Lord over us. And who your master is will define your life. It's, it's the things that if, if you have everything else and not this, nothing else will matter. It's the things that if you have this and nothing else, those things are insignificant. It's the thing that if it gets stripped away from you, you no longer know who you are. Our culture teaches us that freedom is the ability to act according to our will and desires. I know none of you have ever said this, but I've, I've heard it around town at least once or twice. It's a free country. I can do what I want. Any of you ever maybe said that? Or when you're talking to your children about what it looks like for them to grow up and the possibilities, right? You can be whatever you want when you grow up. This is true in some sense. But it's what we tie the idea of freedom to, that we get to actualize our own desires, that we get to do the things that we think are important or that we want to do in that moment. But the thing about our will, the thing about our desires, is that the very thing that makes us feel free can become the thing that enslaves us. We can become a slave to our own desires, our own appetites. It turns out that Doing what we want to do is not always what's best for us. Amen? Because our brains prefer dopamine to reason. We would rather feel good than be virtuous most of the time. And this is what leads us into addiction of all sorts of things, dependent on all kinds of substances, uh, unable to extract ourselves from all kinds of behaviors. The short-term pleasure holds us captive separate from our long-term will, right? We, we want what we want, and we want it now, and we are so bound to what we want that we can't even provide ourselves with what we need. And maybe you've never struggled with that. Maybe you've never struggled with addiction. Maybe you have conquered your will in that sense. But maybe, in the midst of that, you've become a slave to your reputation. The idea that you're a good person, an upstanding citizen, an excellent employee has been the badge of honor that you wear and that really drives you. That you have the approval, the respect, the admiration, maybe even the jealousy of others pushing you forward. 
When that happens, sometimes our reputation becomes more important than the reality, right? Sometimes we'll do things to, to defend our reputation that are exactly contrary to what we want people to think about us. We might lie to make people think that we're honest. We might steal to make people think that we're wealthy. Whatever it is, those ideas about ourselves can enslave us, can oppress us. And maybe it's not the reputation. Maybe it's the income. Maybe it's the prestige or power that comes with your position. And you've reached a point in your life where it is unimaginable to live without those things. Such that you would do things you never would have otherwise done. Because you've, been a, you've become a slave to your ambition. Maybe you've gone in the opposite direction. You, you haven't ever been ambitious at all. And you've judged other folks who are. And you, your satisfaction is in that you've never gotten caught up chasing after the Joneses. And the self-righteousness that you feel about that holds you captive. For other people, it's possessions, right? The things that they think they own have come to possess them. This looks like obsessively checking our investments, unceasing vigilance about our property, maintaining everything in mint and pristine condition, not buying things to use them, but buying things so that we have them, and they must be in perfect aesthetic and working order at all times. This isn't a matter of stewardship, but a matter of control, right? The things that we own can begin to own us and lead us to use our time and our attention and our money in ways that we wouldn't have done if we didn't feel obligated to those things. Desires, ambition, possessions, wealth, prosperity. There's nothing wrong with any of these things on their own. They're all signs of, of God's goodness and God's drive in us when they're handled appropriately. But when they become the things that we worship and the motivations that drive our lives, when these things rule over us rather than us utilizing them in our service to the Lord, they're terribly destructive. Things that God made to be good can become for us evil of the ways that we get shackled by them, often without ever being aware of it. And then there are other ways that we are oppressed as humans uh, that, that aren't good in any way, and yet they're here. Some of us feel oppressed by grief and loss. Some of us in the world are oppressed by tyranny, right, by unjust leadership that is oppressive. For others, there are abusers and enslavers at any scale that, that just hold people down. This is the story of the Israelites in Egypt, right? There was a pharaoh that came along who did not remember Joseph. He enslaved all of the people of Israel, and for hundreds of years, they lived laboring for someone else's prophets, and things got worse and worse and worse for them. And then, what are we talking about today? redemption. God redeemed them, right? He sent the ten plagues. He led them through the, the Red Sea where he conquered Pharaoh's army. Every person, Pharaoh and the army that would have oppressed them, he defeated. God redeemed them. He won them back from the people who had control over them and had no right to them. Every one of us has a master. As sure as you breathe, you have a master. 
But since Adam and Eve first sinned, that master for humanity has been wrapped up in the forces of sin and death. This is not the way we were made to be. We were made for communion with God, to be beloved gardeners laboring in his fields. But it's what we have become through the power of sin. And no amount of struggling against these things is going to set us free from these chains. We can't cut through the rope that holds our hands together. We can't shake off the chains that hold our legs in place. We can't pick the lock of the prison cell that we have made for ourselves. And even if we could escape, we would find ourselves into another cell right along the way. We cannot get out on our own. But Jesus can set us free. In Jesus, you can find true liberation. And this is what happens when we confess Jesus as Lord. We confess that he is our master and not anything else, and he becomes the driving force behind our lives. He frees us from everything else that makes demands on our time and attention, and he sets us free to live in one coherent vocation, following after him, seeking to please him, and doing the things that he has called us to do. He's the one who's worthy of our worship. He is the one who can rightfully be in charge of our lives. And we know that he's worthy to be our Lord, not only because he's powerful and seated at the right hand of the Father, ready to rule over all of creation, but we know that he's worthy to be our Lord because he has redeemed us through his blood. He has given his life. He's given everything in order to make it possible for us to be aligned with him in right relationship. He doesn't do it just through power, just through destruction, just by casting out everything else in the world, by tearing it all apart so that we can only focus on him. He does it by letting himself be torn apart so that we can see his love and we can find the freedom that he has that gives him the confidence to die and rise again rather than invoke violence against his enemies. So I don't know what it is today that has a hold on you or has had a hold on you in the past. Maybe it's guilt and shame. Maybe it's grief and sadness and loss. Maybe it's your own ambition. Maybe it's the desires that you are living into that are destroying your life and your family. Maybe it's the possessions that have begun to possess you. Maybe you know the redemption of God from some of those things already. But what I want you to hear today is that you nor anyone else has to be a captive to those things. Jesus can set you free. He's already done the work to make it possible. He's done it by the power and the worth of his very life, by the gift of his blood. The redemption of Hector, as we talked about at the beginning, was negotiated and purchased. His dad paid a ransom for him. The redemption of the Israelites was won from Pharaoh by, by destroying Pharaoh, right? The plagues and the destruction of his army. And these and other possibilities come into play when we talk about redemption. But whatever metaphor you choose, whether the blood of Jesus is used to pay a ransom for us, the, the value of the God-man that is beyond our imagination, giving his life for you so that you can be set free is worth more than any treasure any king could ever offer. Or whether the 
death and the resurrection of Jesus has made it possible for him to storm the gates of hell and mortally wound Satan himself such that he no longer has a claim on you? This is what it means to be redeemed. That Jesus sets us free from everything that binds us up. Things, on, things in heaven, things on earth, things in hell itself. Everything that holds us back, everything that pushes us down, everything that imprisons us and holds us captive and keeps us living rightfully under the care of the one master who is worthy to rule over our lives, a good master, a loving master, a master who loves us even more than we love ourselves. One of the best hymns that we have in, in all of our, our canon of hymns and our hymnal uh, that describes redemption is Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be. We're only singing one hymn right now, and it's kind of hard to sing, and I wanted to give y'all something easier to sing today, amen? But I want to give you a few of the verses anyway. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, Oh, my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This is the gospel that for a long time we have been bound up in the dungeon of sin, unable to see the light of day, unable to escape on our own, and we wake up by the power of Jesus to the light of Christ breaking into our lives. And the chains that once held us captive falling off and our heart freeing us to get up and to follow after Jesus, our rightful Lord, all the way to the very throne of God. This is what it looks like to be redeemed. This is part of the good news of the gospel, that God sets us free from everything that doesn't have a rightful hold over our lives so that we can allow Jesus to be our master and our Lord as it ought to be. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we are overwhelmed that you have redeemed us. And sometimes we sell you short, acting as if your grace cannot free us from the things that have a hold on us. And today we offer those things to you. We entrust ourselves, our souls, our very lives to you, our master and our Lord, confident that you will care for us because you have shown us your care on the cross. We pray that you would free us, that you would free all of your people and all of the world from the, the sin that clings so closely, O oh Lord, so that we can follow you, run after you, chase after you, all the way to the throne of Jesus. We don't want freedom that lets us do what we want. We want the freedom that frees us to do what you want for us, 
We can be your missionaries, your martyrs, your evangelists, your witnesses, your preachers, your servants in the world. May it be so by the power of your grace that has woken us up and shown your light into our lives and cast our chains away. We pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. We're going to close today as we have over the course of the last few weeks with a song. Um, so what I'm going to do in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand and to turn in your hymnals to number 370, Victory in Jesus. We're going to sing that together. Uh, and I invite you to sing with gusto. Sing like you believe it this morning. Amen. Um, and, uh, but before we do that, I'm going to do things a little bit out of order from our normal practice and go ahead and offer you a benediction. And I do that as a reminder to you uh, that because when we sing, we breathe deeper and we project further, it is better for us to visit outside after we sing. So uh, can I get some assent that after we sing, we'll go outside and, and visit out there just to decrease the chances that we give anybody something we don't want to give them today? <laughs> Amen. Uh, so let's, uh, let's stand and body your spirit as you're able and turn to 370 and then receive this benediction. As you go, sorry, Theresa, I, I gave you a false start. It was my fault. As you go forth from this place today, go in the power of Jesus Christ who has saved you and redeemed you from the power of sin and go to share the good news with all whom you meet in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.